0: Welcome back to the How's the Market podcast. You know, this week we've got Lance Lambert on. Lance is the former um, the writer at Fortune Magazine's focused on housing and brings a very, very unique perspective. He's a consultant, he's launched Resi Club. He's doing so many things right now, helping people, helping consumers understand the housing market. And we've got him on the podcast to talk about several things that are, uh, uh, you know, hot topics today. First, we're going to dive deeper into institutional investors in their activity in the market. You know, a lot of buzz about that right now. Uh, the second thing, we're going to talk about affordability. Lance has a unique perspective on the, the past decade, what caused the you know affordability uh, advantages we saw in this country and what affordability looks like into the future. And third, one of the areas he is an expert on, uh, the builders in this country, what they're up to, how they're winning in this market and what he sees ahead for them so let's go ahead and let's jump in well lance i'm excited to have you on the uh, podcast today thanks for making time to join
1: yeah so excited to be here you know a big fan of your guys's work and the stuff that you do and your team does Uh, you do a really good job of like helping people to understand the u.s housing market so really appreciate it
0: Well, well well thank you for that i you know the kcm crew does an amazing job of putting all of that together uh all the work that we do is in thanks to Everybody that's writing, researching, uh, helping members uh, use it more effectively. Um, and so uh, I agree. We, we've got a team that is dedicated, really, to to helping folks understand things. And that's one, one reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast. You've always been somebody that uh, has uh, wanted to help people understand, uh, you know, the housing market. You've written extensively, you know. Uh, as as a writer for Fortune, you now have Resi Club. You do work with corporate clients. I know that uh, that, that leverage all the work that you do. Tell folks that maybe don't know you, Lance, a, a little bit of your background. What what got you started really in this uh, in the housing market?
1: Yeah, what got me started is I was working as a data journalist at Bloomberg, and I had decided I was going to leave journalism. And I wanted to become a data scientist, was taking a lot of courses for it. And so I kind of took a bridge job out of journalism, which was working at Realtor.com and analyzing their data. And I thought because I would be working so close with their analyst and their data scientists, that that would be a good bridge for me out of uh, journalism. And while I was there, my two years at Realtor.com, 2017, 18, and 19, I was looking at regional housing market data every day. And so what occurred is I decided I wanted to stay in journalism. And I left realtor.com to go work at Fortune, where I uh, went there not to cover real estate, but was actually building a data newsletter for executives and CEOs. But while I was there, the pandemic occurred. And my wife and I, you know, we decided we were going to move back to Cincinnati where we were from, build a house. And at the same time, a pandemic, the pandemic housing boom took off. Right. And so there was a big need for people to find information about housing. And so I got stuck back into writing about housing because I knew so much about like the regional data. Right. And that stuff. And from there, you know, I really just got interested in it and interested in what was happening in housing and interested in just helping people find out good information, because there is no shortage of bad information on housing. (laughs) Uh, You can find as much uh, nonsense that you would like, Uh, or, you know, and the thing is people aren't even searching for a lot of the nonsense. It just kind of comes to them. Uh, So an example of that this week uh, or last week, or recently, somebody tweeted out that uh, forty-two or 44%, forty-four percent. Yeah.
0: Forty-four.
1: Yes, they said that forty-four percent of all the homes bought this year were bought by private equity firms. That's a number that is not, you know, two times bigger. It's not three times bigger than reality. It's not four times. It's at least a hundred times bigger than what has happened this year. And even if you would take a broader approach and not just do private equity, but all institutional buyers, any buyer that has at least a 1,000 homes in their portfolio, they only bought 0.44, and I'm talking about a half of 1%, so one out of like 200 and something homes this year in the U.S. housing market, according to the latest numbers by uh, John Burns Real Estate and Consulting. And according to Parcel Labs, they own – 0.73, 0.73 so still less than 1% of the right. total US housing stock and even if you allow yourself to look at maybe companies with at least 100 homes in their portfolio or at least 10 homes in their portfolio it's still you can only get that number around 3%. So the the really big players while they're out there and they are bigger in places like Charlotte, Jacksonville, uh, Atlanta, Phoenix, Dallas, Houston on a national level, they're just not as big as people think. And, right. this, and numbers like 44%, it's just completely made up. And the source for that was an obscure Medium post where they cited a, a Business Insider article and an Atlantic article. So I'd actually subscribe to those places uh, just to make sure and verify where they got it from. And it wasn't even mentioned in the story. So it Interesting. Was, so the Medium post... Came up with a fake number, cited places. The places they cited didn't even have the numbers. And then just, you know, some MMA fighter with 500,000 followers tweeted it out. And then the next thing you know, several people were tweeting it out. Elon comments on something about it. And pretty soon that number is going to be something that, you know, uh, gets cited uh, and, you know, just without people knowing where it came from and it's right. going to be floating around the universe for a while.
0: Yeah. It's, it's amazing to look at that and say, okay, maybe even to try to draw, this is where it came from, but to look somewhere and say, there's no even, you know, even misinterpretation of something just to, to see that. So why, why do you think you said something before that, that there's so no shortage of misinformation on the housing market? Why is that the case?
1: Um, I, I think, I think it's for a few reasons. One being that we lived through uh, a historical anomaly, which was the great financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And home prices on a national level dropping like 27%, some markets going down 50%. Uh, it was a very steep recession that came with it. Uh, it created a lot of, uh, economic, Uh, political, socioeconomic issues in the country. And it was also a very big historical anomaly. And so I think a lot of people think that because we've lived through that, that it will happen again. And so I think people are always kind of seeing ghosts in a way. And so when somebody writes something uh, that kind of invokes that, because people live through it and it has a you know, an emotional impression on their lives because although maybe they didn't get hit by the housing side of it, they might've gotten hit by another side of it. And so it just uh, hits an emotional um, element in people. And so I think having lived through that is what's created a lot of uh, the misinformation that is constantly pushing a very big, uh, like national uh, housing crash. And And I think if you look at the historical data, one thing that's really interesting is that you go back the entire post World War II era, and there is only one national crash for prices, and that's GFC. Now, there's some Mm -hmm. other ones where there's some like regional corrections that were, you know, steeper. You know, there was the uh, mid '80s, late '80s oil and bust, uh, oil and bust. In Texas and prices there dropped a lot in the early 90s there's parts of California that get hit and so there there's always been regional corrections but on a national level uh, GFC and the housing bubble housing crash is just an anomaly.
0: Yeah your perspective on that you know and and I've always thought too we've said at KCM when people hear the word recession today they immediately tie it back to the rate financial crisis and You know, maybe seeing somebody, a family member go through, you know, a challenging situation in their home, have to get foreclosed on whatever the case is, and they associate that to whatever could come today. But there's no doubt. I'll tell you an interesting thing. We published in the last couple of weeks, we published a social post on uh, institutional investors and who owns homes in this country. And we just uh, yesterday or the day before, at the time we're recording this, published a, a an Instagram post that that the 30-year fixed had fallen below 7%. Tremendous news right for anybody looking to buy a home. Guess which one got more activity? The Institutional Investor post. Really? Interesting. Then even even on that just in it, it's amazing to see the number of people that are, their ears are up. So if somebody's trying to understand that, can you give a little bit of perspective on when Wall Street started to participate in our business, because it's, I, I think it's in this subject, it's about being educated and, and certainly bringing the facts because there's just information out there that, that people maybe want to vilify somebody in this country, you know, relative to housing.
1: Yeah. So what occurred is that following the housing crash, uh, there was a lot of homes And a lot of parts of the country where inventory was high, uh, prices were still falling, there wasn't really a bottom, and they had fallen just too far beyond fundamentals. One thing about the housing crash is that, yes, there was a crash, but then there was also an overcorrection, too, where prices went too far down. And so the institutional buyers uh, saw an opportunity because what had also occurred is there was a tightening of mortgage standards which was also hitting the market, and it was kind of trying to figure it out. Um, And so because prices were so low and were overcorrecting and it went too low, uh, it created an opportunity for the institutional investors to jump in, chase the yields, knowing that then prices would probably move, uh, they would have a good rental yield. And so a lot of the homes even owned today, a lot of them were bought back then. Right. During that very low period. And they, you know, according to some papers, helped to put in like a bottom into some of these housing markets. Right.
0: Right. And and let's let's also draw the difference between the way those homes were acquired back then is very different than today. Right. They'd come in and, and and acquire you know a portfolio of homes. And even with banks, you know what I mean, to go in and say, Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna take all these assets off your books. Very different than how that's going today.
1: Yeah, so the game has definitely changed now. Where then they were just buying up a lot of homes in these markets that had fallen too far. I think like Las Vegas and Phoenix, where corrections were like 55%. Yeah. Now, a lot of what's happening is build to rent, where these builders are teaming up with built, or, or these institutional investors are teaming up with builders to build communities. which will then be rented out. And so it's managed differently than a bunch of scattered homes. And this is one of the reasons why some economists are worried about some of these bills trying to ban institutional investors is on a net basis. If they're teaming up with builders to build communities, that's a net improvement in housing supply for the country. And if you completely ban the institutional investors, uh, you could kind of drive out some of that supply. Now, it's not a huge part of the market. It's still a smaller piece, um, but it's something. And I I think that it's, uh, you know, I, I, I think the best thing that could occur is for people to use this as a moment to kind of educate themselves and see what's happening in the housing market. In terms of institutional investing and not just a bunch of narrative and nonsense and i think what they would see is that institutional investors are a small percentage of the market uh although in some pockets of the country they're a bigger share and all and then what's occurring now with a lot of their buying is actually build for rent which is a net increase in supply
0: yeah so uh, i i think to your point Agents, anybody in the housing market that's listening to this, one officer agent title rep, um, that that's following what's happening can be educated, right? And we have the opportunity in today's market to take great information and say, no, this is what's actually happening. So I think the question that comes up too that I love your perspective on is kind of a two-part question. One, what do you see as the future of the institutional investor? And two, where the conspiracy theory kind of winds up on this. Is sort of the scenario where people say, "Well, wait till they get ready to dump all of these homes." Is it, I don't know if you've heard that or like like what what you think about the future in in those scenarios?
1: Yeah. So where I see institutional investing right now is that during the pandemic housing boom, there was a big surge up, and for you know at the height of like Q two two thousand and twenty two, they were buying two point two percent of all of U.S. homes uh, that quarter or not in the whole country but of the sales that quarter they were 2.2 percent so still very small but for them that's a bigger percent than normal and the reason that occurred is it was really a perfect storm for high returns home prices were moving up quickly rents were moving up quickly easy access to capital low interest rates so a lot of money was floating around and it needed places to kind of go chase yields and housing was one of the many assets that boomed during the pandemic. And so that's why they jumped in. What has occurred since then is interest rates have spiked, uh, rents aren't increasing as fast, and home prices are very high, and construction costs, and this is important because a lot of these institutional investors are buying homes that are, you know, maybe less than ideal on the market and need a lot of repairs. And if the construction costs are high for them to flip it into a rental, then that also hurts their yields. And so we've seen the returns for, ins- for buying homes as investment properties uh, right now is uh, has come down. It's not as good of a period. It, for in- and
0: they've sort of pulled back in that too, right? Yes.
1: So by pulling back it, it more or less – They're not buying a ton. They're not really selling a ton Uh, on an aggregate basis. They're just kind of like sitting on the sidelines. Now, are there a few that are selling? Yeah, like Vinebrook is selling uh, like 3% of their portfolio. It adds up to like 500 homes on the market right now. Uh, But on a national level, when you have, you know, what, several, like 4 or 5 million home sales a year, 500 homes isn't a lot. Sure, um, right. And so, you know, maybe in some of the neighborhoods and zip codes, you know, it matters. But on a national level, it's usually not going to have a huge impact. So I I think what we're seeing right now and what we will continue to see is that when we go through periods where the yields make sense for these institutions, they're going to buy more. And when we go through periods where the yields don't make as much sense, they're not going to buy as much, and there's also going to be periods where you know they're selling some homes, and uh, some of these institutional investors will over leverage themselves and need to sell some homes. Um, and but it, at the end of the day, on the aggregate level for the U.S. housing market, it's not moving the needle a ton.
0: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate your breakdown. It's a it's a hot topic for sure right now, and and I think it will be. Going into an election cycle, it will certainly be a hot topic, right? Because it can, you know, the institutional investor can become, and in in some of the false narratives, the reason you can't buy a home right now, you know? Well, so
1: that that goes to one of my theories, which is I think that next year could be a little bit of a tough year, uh, not just for the institutional side, but really across the housing industry uh where housing affordability has gotten so strained and now we're going into new year and people love to point the finger and uh so i think what we're probably going to see is more communities uh and people running for local office pushing back against like short-term rentals uh i you know you have seen the like national uh, like doj look at national association of realtors I think what they'll probably realize is that is not a good political issue. Uh, While you would upset way more people than you would, uh, you know.
0: uh, Yeah, I get you. Uh,
1: But I think on the short-term rental side, they're the ones probably the most vulnerable to political pressure this year. Now, the institutional side, uh, I I think that could pick up. Uh, And you already saw that one bill that was put in the uh, quote-unquote, ban, I I forget what the name of the bill is, but it's essentially ban hedge funds from buying homes. Right. And by definition, uh, they're calling out institutional investors. I, I looked through the bill a little bit, and I do think the bill, which not only calls on a ban of institutional home buying, but calls on them to sell off all their homes within 10 years, I think it would also ban build to rent. Uh, which is hmm. institutional investors, you know, teaming up with builders to build homes. So, on a net supply side for the housing market, um, yeah, it it, it it might actually hurt things. Um, and and so I I think looking ahead, uh, you know, if affordability stays strained, it probably will work its way a bit into politics. Now, one of the good things sure. is is that we have been through this period where affordability has gotten really strained, right? House prices went up a lot during the pandemic housing boom. Then mortgage rates went up a lot, and that really deteriorated affordability. But hopefully, now that the Fed is saying that, hey, you know, the media member of our FOMC board thinks there's going to be three cuts next year. And as you see, uh, financial markets start to price in those cuts. And if yields in the bond market come down and mortgage rates come down, and affordability starts to improve, people start to have a little bit of acceptance about, hey, you know what, this three, four percent mortgage rate I have, yeah, these probably aren't coming back. And maybe if you know they get a mortgage rate, they buy down to like high fives or low six, they're like, you know what, my life's kind of moved in a different direction, our family's gotten bigger, let's move. Right. Is some of that acceptance and if mortgage rates can come down a bit and affordability improves, that hopefully will also relieve some of the uh, other like political tensions that the housing market can be facing.
0: Most real estate agents know what's happening.
1: Good agents understand what's happening, but great agents, they can explain what's happening. At Keeping Current Matters, we help real estate agents become experts. With market insights and marketing tools, you'll not only stand out, you'll thrive in any market. Keeping current matters. Be the expert.
0: I want to talk about affordability. I want to go a little bit deeper with you and get your perspective on it because this is where the institutional narrative ultimately goes to in some ways is affordability. And I agree with you on the fact that typically legislation and um, any type of political effort in housing has been demand generated on a a first-time homebuyer credit or uh, grants or things like that. And in the future, near future, it'll be inventory based, right? Whether it's short term rental or something else, how do we create more inventory? So, agree, a, a, a thousand percent in that. When you think about affordability, is there a um, uh, sort of a, a metric? We always like to look at uh, NARS uh, Housing Affordability Index. Is there one that you look at uh, regularly, or, or, or how do you measure affordability?
1: Yeah. So uh, affordability, uh, which, you know, when, when I say housing affordability um, you know, it's a little uh, it's a little um, misleading because housing affordability on a net basis is actually really great in the U S because most people own their home. uh, And most people have a mortgage that is, you know, the net uh, effective rate is like, 3.6 to
0: 3.8%. Sure. They couldn't go rent an apartment for probably what their mortgage payment is.
1: And then you have another like what, 35 to 40% that like own their home outright. I forget what Mm -hmm. the number is, but it's pretty high. And so housing affordability on a net basis is actually fairly good. And even in the rental market, it's not like too strained to historic fundamentals. The one piece of the market though that is very strained right now is the purchasing market. Somebody who goes out and buys a home at uh, today's mortgage rates and today's house prices. And so the three variables, there are incomes, mortgage rates, house prices, and given the run up in home prices and the, um, the mortgage rate shock in October, we hit the highest level for uh or or the worst level for housing affordability in the purchasing market since like the early 80s. And the early 80s, we had what, 15, 16, 17, 18% mortgage rates for a period. Uh, That's come down a little bit as mortgage rates now have fallen under 7%. And so I I will sometimes use the Atlanta Fed's housing affordability metric, which goes back to like 2006. Uh, But I also rely a lot on Black Knights that they put out. I think it's pretty good. It goes back to like the seventies and AR has a good one too. Um, and, but the, no matter what you look at, affordability has gotten strained. Uh, and, but as mortgage rates come down, you should see some improvement there. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that the past decade heading into the pandemic, the 2010, and really you could take this all the way to the end of 2021, Housing affordability had its most affordable decade ever. That was the most affordable decade ever when you factor in mortgage rates, house prices and incomes. But if you go back and look at the articles written in that decade, it was all about millennials can't buy homes, right. millennials are never going to be able to buy homes. The majority of millennials are now homeowners, which people kind of forget. Uh, but that decade was actually a very affordable decade for um, housing affordability. So I, I, I think getting back to that is very unlikely because what created that was a, a bust and a national crash. And then the economy, which struggled for a very long period of time and kept mortgage rates very low, that period is less likely to be repeated. And it's right. not something that people should necessarily be rooting for. But I think we could get s- somewhat closer to historic average of affordability. If mortgage rates come closer to like 6.0, 5.5, then you would kind of get closer to the historic average, which is still above the pandemic levels. But, Say that again? Uh, so if, if mortgage rates fall right now to 5.5 or 6%, okay. while the affordability levels in the purchasing market for the housing market would still be above pre-pandemic levels, they would be fairly close to the average historic norm, like the 40-year average.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because certainly when you look at affordability in the last decade, really, if we're talking uh, 2010 to 2020, affordability has been tremendous. But, But you bring in a good point of realizing why that was the case and what happened to set that up and where we are today, which is very different than that. And let's be thankful for that in housing, that we don't have a repeat of, of the great financial crisis or the or the housing crisis, really. And so we shouldn't expect to see that return to this you know, outsized affordability, which has been very good for people uh, over the last 10 years or 10 plus years. Um, it's, it's, that's an interesting perspective. What do you, what do you see, I, I think— in the future next ten to twenty thirty years you know the the narrative sometime just like the institutional investor narrative can be young people gen Z whatever it is um, will not be able to buy a home um, and how do you see that playing out as compared to to prior generations uh, and, I, and you true it up pretty good like to look back in 2011, 12, 13, and see some of the same you know sort of articles for millennials.
1: Yeah. So one thing I'm pretty certain of is they will want to buy homes, and they sure. will buy homes. Uh, there was a lot of articles coming out of like GFC about how home ownership was a bad deal, uh, renting is better. Millennials aren't going to buy homes. Their lifestyles are different. And what occurred is that just like with any other generation, millennials got older. Uh, more of them got married. More of them had kids. More of them wanted to buy homes. That that will be repeated by uh, Gen Z. The only question is, uh, it's kind of an age question, which is over the past like four generations, people been buying homes a little later. They're still buying homes, but the first time home buyer is getting a little older with each generation. So it's like, when uh, is Gen Z going to buy homes? at the same age that millennials did, or because affordability is strained and some lifestyle things are different, are they going to buy homes like a year or two later than millennials did? Um, I think that's the biggest question, not if uh, you know they're going to want to get into the housing market or not. I think they will. And I think a part of the reason they also will is that if you notice Gen Z content they actually talk a lot about the housing market and about a housing affordability. Yeah. Yeah. And so, if somebody cares that housing affordability seems kind of out of reach to them right now, or that a housing affordability is kind of strained, that tells you that that's like an aspirational thing for their life and that they're thinking about it and caring about it. And so, I think as their incomes grow and affordability improves and they age, uh, they'll, they'll be buying homes like any yeah, other. Yeah, that's a
0: great point. That's a really good perspective. Um, this is a great conversation. So, you know, institutional investors to affordability, which leads me to the third topic that, that you do a lot of work in, and that's with builders. Hmm. Um, it, this is a year in you know, wrapping up 2023 when we're recording this that, I think in the market overall, builders have figured out a way to navigate it and win and offering incentives. But what are you seeing from builders right now?
1: Yeah. So one thing that occurred this year is that of by category in stocks, single-family home builders have seen some of the biggest returns in, mm-hmm. in the country, in the market. And what happened is that Wall Street pretty much came to the realization, oh, builders are going to do well on the single family side regardless of rates. If rates come di- so rates have gone up and these big box builders have been able to use their high margins to offer things like mortgage rate buy downs and other incentives to kind of entice uh, uh, buyers into the market and you know a lot of them have mortgage arms and, uh, so as mortgage rates went up, actually the big builders, the big box builders are getting more market share and still, you know, building single family homes. So some people have thought, oh, well, as, uh, you know, mortgage rates come down, well, that's going to hurt builders, right? Cause they can't do the mortgage rate buy-downs, but at the end of the day, that's going to, they'll still do well there too. So I, right. I think where we kind of are is that a lot of the country is underbuilt for single family homes, and there's just not a lot of inventory in the existing home market that's competing against these builders. And so there's demand for the homes. And as affordability gets strained, one thing that people do is they just change expectations. And so people are going to buy smaller homes. Um, and we're, we're seeing that. And the builders are, are smart, agile. They think a few years out. And, you know, um, I, you know, it, it seems like at least what the market thinks is they're well positioned for the next several years.
0: Sure. No, I, I think so. Well, I, I mean, depending on where you look, we're undersupplied by, you probably have really good numbers on that two to five million homes, depending on where you look. Can builders impact, can, can, can they make a dent in that number? in the next few years what's their strategy relative to that
1: yeah it, it's you know it's kind of tough uh you know those estimates range a lot it's pretty much the range you had given um you know they'll probably you know uh it it, it kind of depends on a number of factors and also how the economy goes where does household formation go uh, but i think one thing that's worth pointing out is that in past periods When the Fed has jacked up interest rates, they've almost always, if they've jacked them up, especially as much as we've seen over the past year and a half, it almost always leads to recession. But one of the things that also usually occurs is that as the rate hiking cycle goes on, builders uh, take a hit and, you know, they start to lay off workers And, uh, you know, completions and single family starts and all that rolls over really hard. Well, this cycle, mortgage rates went up. The builders had the highest profit margins they had ever had during the pandemic. And so they just came down a bit on margin. So did an affordability adjustment in some places price too. But the affordability adjustment helped to buffer them from making uh, taking hits on volume and transactions. And so this is a really interesting number, but if you Google uh, residential construction employment, Fred, you will see the government data that shows that we are at the cycle high still for residential Mm. construction employment. And if you go back and you look at every recession in the past, it's already was rolling over like almost 12 months before the recession. So the builders in a way have not only helped to, you know, create a little bit of an affordability improvement to keep some buying activities ha- levels happening in the new construction market, but they're also helping potentially to soft land the whole economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And w- one thing that occurred is during the pandemic, you saw the supply chains get overwhelmed because there was a hit to the labor side of the economy And then you also had this huge rush in to buy goods because people couldn't go do things. They couldn't do international travel. They couldn't do cruises. And uh, you also saw a huge wave of pandemic migration and a housing boom and a lot of people selling their home to go buy something new. And the point I'm getting to there is if you're buying a new home, And you're selling your home to buy something new, or especially if you're moving from like New York City, San Francisco to somewhere else to get a bigger place, you need more stuff, right? And so the housing boom and the pandemic created this uh, supply chain issue. And that is one of the reasons that inflation took off. Well, as the Fed started to rate or, or jump up rates, we saw that existing home sales came way down. There was less churn in the housing market. People were buying fewer things and they weren't buying as many cabinets, fridges because they weren't moving. And that allowed the supply chains to ease up. And it also allowed the supply chains for new construction and builders who gotten really backlogged and allowed them to begin to build homes faster and put more of the completions into the market. And so the, the long story I'm getting to there is the housing market itself might have helped to soft land the whole economy
0: and yeah.
1: the builders not taking a big hit on volumes. And yeah. then also this drop in existing home sales, while it's bad for the industry, there are some p- elements to that happening that probably help to loosen uh, this uh, supply chain issues.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think you put it very well because we we definitely contributed to it, right? The lead up in it, uh, if there's if there's help in the past year, that 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 uh, seems right. So where do, where do you fit on next year recession, soft landing? Get out your crystal ball and and what do you see? Well, you
1: know, I'm I you know I don't like to go too far in that direction. Not a macroeconomist. economist. Uh, <laughs> do talk to a lot of them often, but I will say that my view this cycle has been that it, you, would, you wouldn't get really bearish on the economy until you see residential construction employment roll over, and, and we haven't seen that. Um, and we've also seen inflation come down significantly, and now the Fed is kind of pulling back, and so rates are going to become less restrictive to the economy. That's going to allow some elements to the economy to warm up, hopefully the housing market, existing home sales, you know, probably start to move up a bit here, depending on how much rates come down. Um, and that, you know, helps the economy. So it, it'll be interesting to see. But on the economy, it, it's just hard for me to get really bearish if I don't see, um, you know, residential construction employment rolling over. Yeah. Uh, because I'm kind of in that uh, view of housing is the business cycle. And really specifically, uh, single family construction. Um, you know, it, it's a huge piece of the economy. It's one of the pieces of the economy that contracts and grows. And so you know, when it's contracting, usually the economy is contracting. It's not like healthcare, which healthcare is usually pretty like firm and steady, right? Uh, residential construction moves up and down. And when it moves up, the economy is usually booming. When it moves down, the economy is usually in recession. And right now we're kind of in this middle place, kind of maybe starting to tick up even a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's an interesting take. And uh, you you have a great vantage point in working with builders and doing everything that you do to, to give that um, I'm grateful for it. Are there any other, I'll, I'll wrap on this. Are there any other trends right now that you're seeing or thinking about that aren't being talked about in real estate?
1: Oh, boy. You know, um, because I'm so active on Twitter and usually (laughs) when I have thoughts and I have things that I see that aren't getting talked about, I usually, you know, raise them. Um, You know, I I think some of the things that are interesting are like what's happening to home insurance um, and some of the premiums, uh, especially down south. How does that impact those markets? Um, Interested to see how you know, things, where does, uh, Gen X start to retire, right? Like what are the housing markets that are going to benefit from them retiring? Uh, because one of the things about the boomers retirement is that it drove up prices in a lot of markets, right? And so now those aren't necessarily, um, as desirable for Gen X retirees. Once we get there, uh, be, based on affordability if, if we kind of stay where we are now. Um, and so I don't really know what the answer is in terms of like, where does, you know, this next group of retirees, the next 15, 10, 15 years, where do they go? Uh, but I think that's a great question. And I, and I think it's something that, you know, the people who set themselves up for it are probably going to make a lot of money if they yeah. know the answer to it.
0: Yeah, that's it's a great point. Uh, and lance i just gotta say this is a fascinating conversation fascinating to have you on and just hear your perspective on these topics i'm I'm super grateful and i, I want to say this as we kind of wrap our time together we've definitely got to do it again yes Enjoy this it. was great david really appreciate it well good 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 well we are so grateful for all the great work you do we try to amplify it uh at kcm and get the word out there and um so thank you uh for that and um you know more than anything. We want to get the information in people's hands where they can help buyers and sellers make a make a great decision. Lance, uh, you, you do that, and that's what you stand for. So we're, we're grateful for it. That was an amazing conversation with Lance. Uh, like I said, I want to have him on again because he brings such a wealth of information uh, to the table when we start talking about these topics. You know, the House of Market podcast is designed for you. You know, keeping current matters, we believe every family should feel confident when buying and selling a home. And that is our mission, to give you the information you need to be the expert for the clients you serve. So if you like this podcast, please like it, please subscribe, and share it with somebody that you know that could benefit from this information. And we'll see you again next week on How's the Market.